Here they come. They're charging into it. They're just swinging into this crowd. They're pushing the crowd. It's a stampede. There goes a big blast of tear gas. I can't see. He got me in the face. Oh, man. I choose not simply to run for president. I seek to lead a great nation. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. forth upon this here continent a new nation oh come on it's to rock me stokely oh, conceived conceived like we all was in liberty and dedicated to the one i love i mean dedicated to the proposition that all men honey i tell you all men are created equal I shall not seek, and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The difference between Mr. Wilson and myself is fundamental. The other day, in a speech at Sioux Falls, Mr. Wilson stated his position when he said that the history of government, the history of liberty, was the history of the limitation of governmental power. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man.
1776, the 7th of June, the United Colonies of America had for some years rejected the authority of the British Parliament. Up to now, they had remained loyal to the King of England, George III. The leaders of the United Colonies were gathered at the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia to discuss relations with the British. Richard Henry Lee of Virginia proposed that the United Colonies ought to be free and independent states. Four days later, a committee was appointed to draft a Declaration of Independence. On the 28th of June, the Declaration, written by Thomas Jefferson, was presented and approved. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Most of the 13 states comprising the Confederation enacted constitutions in which the revulsion with anything reminiscent of the power of a monarch was reflected. Strong legislatures were emphasised, the power of executive officers played down. But still, the war with Britain dragged on. And in it, one man stood out. George Washington had earned the respect of all Americans, not only by repeated successes and engagements with the British, but also for his puritanism and high-mindedness. He was now Commander-in-Chief of the United States Forces. As to pay, sir, I beg to assure the Congress that as no pecuniary consideration could have tempted me to accept this arduous employment at the expense of my domestic ease and happiness, I do not wish to make any profit from it. I will keep an exact account of my expenses. Those, I doubt not, they will discharge. And that is all I desire. By the spring of 1782, the war had ended, and the Articles of Confederation had been improved by all 13 states, setting the seal on their independence. Washington resigned his commission and took leave of all the employments of public life. Now the difficult task of building a society with its own political, legal and economic superstructure began. New York City was selected as a temporary national capital, with a federal district on the Delaware River to be set up later. The idea of 13 plenipotentiaries meeting together in a congress at every court in Europe, each with a full power and distinct instructions from his state, presents to view such a picture of confusion, alteration, expense and endless delay as must convince every man of its impracticability. John Adams, founding father and later president. The individual states needed to find a means of preserving their identity within some larger unity. A constitutional convention was called to work out a solution. George Washington was the natural choice for chairman. It is too probable that no plan we propose will be adopted. Perhaps another dreadful conflict is to be sustained. If, to please the people, we offer what we ourselves disapprove, how can we afterwards defend our work? Let us raise a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. The event is in the hand of God. Washington presided, but took no part in debates. After four months of tedious debate, a solution acceptable to all was arrived at. 
We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. If there be any truth in the remark, the crisis at which we are arrived may with propriety be regarded as the era in which that decision is to be made, and a wrong election of the part we shall act may, in this view, deserve to be considered as the general misfortune of mankind. Alexander Hamilton. He led the argument on the Federalist side, but there were many ready to reply. What right had they to say, we the people? My political curiosity, exclusive of my anxious solicitude for the public welfare, leads me to ask, who authorized them to speak the language of we the people instead of we the states? States are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. If the states be not the agents of this compact, it must be one great consolidated national government of the people of all the states. This government will operate like an ambuscade. It will destroy the state governments and swallow the liberties of the people without giving previous notice. An important and enduring theme stated. That speech was made in Virginia in 1788 by Patrick Henry. It, on the one hand, and Hamilton's Federalist views on the other, have been reflected ever since in American politics. And in embryo, they are the bases upon which the two great American political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, were later to grow. One of the features of the new constitution had aroused particular alarm. That was the provision for an executive arm in the shape of a single, single person, the president. To some, this position was embarrassingly close to that of a monarch, an elective monarch. It contrasted strongly with the constitutions of the individual states. But the framers of the constitution were confident that they had provided sufficient checks and balances to ensure that... This process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will seldom fall to any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisitive qualifications. Talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may suffice to elevate a man to the governorship of a state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union. It will not be too strong to say that there will be a constant probability of seeing the station filled by characters preeminent for ability and virtue. A rosy picture, perhaps but not to the Founding Fathers, for in front of them, presiding over their deliberations as they drafted the Constitution, was the personification of the talents and merits with which a President should be endowed. He was, of course, George Washington, and he was unanimously elected first President of the United States on the 4th of February, 1789.
retrieved many years gone by. He bravely said, I did it, sir, I cannot tell a lie. His father knew right there and then he'd be a man of fame. The president on the dollar, George Washington's his name. The president on the dollar, the Yankee Doodle Dollar. The president on the dollar, George Washington's his name. No people can be found to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Or so it seemed to Washington when he was inaugurated on the balcony of Federal Hall, New York City. But after two terms in office, when he came to say farewell in 1796, Washington was somewhat less grandiloquent on the state of the nation. In contemplating the causes which may distress our union, it occurs as a matter of serious concern that any ground should have been furnished for characterizing parties by geographical discriminations, northern and southern, Atlantic and western, whence designing men may endeavor to excite a belief that there is a real difference of local interests and views. You cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. What Washington was referring to uh, was from the very outset of practical government a split had appeared amongst the members of Congress. It was to lead within a few years to the emergence of national parties which would make the 18th century electoral machinery of the Constitution a 19th century anachronism. The interesting thing about the origin of the American parties is that they first developed in Washington's cabinet and in Congress, not at grassroots level. Indeed, whilst the Declaration of Independence might see all men as created equal in the sight of God, the politicians of the day didn't see much of a place for the grassroots. It would be as unnatural to refer the choice of a proper person for president to the people as to refer a trial of colours to a blind man. So said one founding father, and the means which the Founding Fathers laid down for the electing of a president bears all the marks of this plutocracy to the present. For when Americans go to the polls on Tuesday, they will not be electing a president at all. Instead, they will be choosing 500 or so largely unknown men to select a president weeks later in the Electoral College. These electors usually vote for the candidate who wins their state, but there is nothing in the Constitution to say they must. But in 1800, there were other considerations. I do not believe that the Most High will permit a howling atheist to sit at the head of this nation. The howling atheist was none other than Thomas Jefferson, but the Federalists saw more tangible reasons for opposing him. Tremble then in case of Jefferson's election, all ye holders of public funds, for your ruin is at hand. Old men who have retired to spend the evening of life upon the fruits of the industry of their youth, widows and orphans with their scanty pittances, public banks, insurance companies, literary and charitable institutions will be involved in one common, certain and not very distant ruin. This unlikely assortment of interests failed to affect the result. What was significant was party label. Jefferson's running mate was Aaron Burr, 
though there was no separate election for vice president at the time. Their opponents were the former president, John Adams, and Charles Pickney, both federal candidates. The result was a tie between Jefferson and Burr, the two anti-federalists, and the final decision passed to, to the House of Representatives. Ambition and interest will direct Burr's conduct, and his own state is commercial and largely interested in the funded debt. If he will honourably support the government for which he has undoubted talents, he will have the support of the Federalists and some of the Jacobins whom he will detach from Jefferson's side, and his election will disorganise and embarrass the party who have given him their votes. The Federalists thought they could make a deal with Burr to stop Jefferson, but Burr would not be bought. He remained quite inactive during six days of Congress balloting, and finally Jefferson won a majority. As for Burr... The means existed of electing Burr, but this required his cooperation. By deceiving one man and tempting two, he might have secured a majority of the states. He will never have another chance of becoming President of the United States, and the little use he has made of the one which has occurred gives me but an humble opinion of the talents of an unprincipled man. And so Burr kept his integrity and became Vice President, and with him continued the decline in importance of the position of America's second citizen, described by its first incumbent as the most insignificant position that ever invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. The tradition has been maintained. After Jefferson, only one vice president, until 1968, has gained the presidency by election instead of inheritance, which may be just as well when one looks at some of the recent contenders for that office, like General Curtis LeMay, running mate of George Wallace in 1968. The robust health of Bikini's rodent population 20 years after the atomic bomb tests there is conclusive evidence that nuclear war would not destroy all life. Or, indeed, Vice President Spiro T. Agnew, of whom Mr. Nixon said, I selected Ted Agnew as the one who best met my exacting criteria, qualified to be president, an effective campaigner, an administrator who could assume new responsibilities for the office of vice president. But to return to Jefferson. Sometimes it is said that man cannot be trusted with the government of himself. Can he then be trusted with the government of others? Or have we found angels in the forms of kings to govern him? Let history answer this question. Which history very soon did. When Jefferson resigned, a contemporary thanked him. For the model of an administration conducted on the purest principles of republicanism, for pomp and state laid aside, patronage discarded, internal taxes abolished, a host of superfluous offices disbanded, the monarchic maxim that a national debt is a national blessing renounced, without the guilt or calamities of conquest, a vast and fertile region added to our country, peace with the civilized world preserved, through a period of uncommon difficulty and trial. Jefferson had laid the foundations on which liberalism could build. He had demonstrated the falseness of the Federalist dogma that only the propertied few were fit to govern. And, surprisingly for one who believed that the presidency should not be a law unto itself, he had established a pattern for reforming presidents who came after him of directing the party majority in Congress. 
but his greatest contribution was social rather than political. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that from and after the first day of January 1808, it shall not be lawful to import or bring into the United States or the territories thereof from any foreign kingdom, place or country, any Negro, mulatto or person of color with intent to hold, sell or dispose of such Negro, mulatto or person of color as a slave or to be held to service or labor. The abolition of the slave trade and in the South there was a stirring. But the act was only an aspiration and little changed for years to come. And during these years there was a decline in the importance of the office as less positive presidents allowed the power of the executive to slip into the hands of the congressional politicians. But then came 1828. It was the first election that resembled those of the modern century. Most of the states by now had passed laws making the choice of presidential electors, the Electoral College, a matter of popular vote. The Democrats had a candidate to appeal to that vote. Old Hickory, General Andrew Jackson, the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. He was a man to suit the times, as described by James Fenimore Cooper. It is provoking to find a whole nation dwelling in this species of alarming security for no other reason than that their vulgar and everyday practices teach them to rely on themselves instead of trusting to the rational inferences of philanthropic theorists who have so long been racking their ingenuity to demonstrate that a condition of society which has delusively endured for nearly 200 years has been in existence all that time in direct opposition to the legitimate deductions of the science of government. Jackson's philanthropy lay in another direction, for he introduced the spoils system, a new concept at the time. He called it rotation in office, that is, an office holder's first loyalty is to his party. And so, every time the United States changes its president, it also changes literally thousands of other public servants, from attorney general to village postmaster. Of equal importance was Jackson's stand on the rights of individual states within the Union. I consider the power to annul a law of the United States, assumed by one state, incompatible with the existence of the Union, contradicted expressly by the letter of the Constitution, unauthorized by its spirit, inconsistent with every principle on which it was founded, and destructive of the great object for which it was formed. The citizens of South Carolina had adopted an ordinance nullifying tariffs which the federal government had imposed. They prepared to resist Jackson by force. But Old Hickory knew how to use force too, and within nine months that particular threat to the Union was removed. During this period, the two-party system had been evolving, but it was not until 1854 in Wisconsin that the modern Republican Party was born out of an anti-slavery movement. It spread rapidly throughout the North. But other movements were festering and spreading too. Abraham Lincoln, still relatively unknown, thought that... Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. 
When the know-nothings get control, it will read, All men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. I'm a colored spade, a nigger, a black nigger, a jungle bonnie jigaboo, coon pickin' any mile, mile. Uncle Tom and your mama, little black Sambo, cotton pickin', swamp guinea, junk man, shoe shine boy, elevator operator, table cleaners at heart and heart off, slave voodoo zombie, your banky lift, flatten Tap dancer, resident of Harlem and president of the United States of Love. Said president of the United States of Love. An attempt was made to inspire a general slave insurrection, but its white leader failed and was convicted of treason and conspiring with slaves to commit murder. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted of a design on my part to free the slaves. This court acknowledges, too, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here, which I suppose to be the Bible, which teaches me to remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. I endeavor to act up to that instruction. I say I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, is no wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood further with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I say... Let it be done. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be repaid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true. Abraham Lincoln. In his inaugural address, he asserted that the Union was indestructible, and he urged reconciliation between the North and South. But on April 12, 1861, the Confederates opened fire, and so began America's Civil War. Lincoln called for 80,000 volunteers and declared war on the secessionists. All quiet along the Potomac, they say, except here and there a stray picket is shot as he walks on his beat to and fro by a rifleman hid in the thicket. 
Tis nothing. A private or two now and then will not count in the news of the battle. Not an officer lost, only one of the men moaning out all alone the death rattle. There's only the sound of the lone sentry's tread as he tramps from the rock to the fountain and thinks of the two on the low trundle bed far away in the cot on the mountain. For every southern boy 14 years old, not once, but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when it's still not two o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. The brigades are in position behind the rail fence. The guns are laid and ready in the woods, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out. And Pickett himself, with his long oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand probably, and his sword in the other, looking up the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word. And it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. A far from glorious 4th of July for the Confederates. 20,000 men killed or wounded, and the first major victory for Lincoln. But the war dragged on. Lincoln was elected for a second term. He was inaugurated on the 4th of March, 1865. On the 7th of April, the South finally surrendered. On the 14th of April, Lincoln was shot and died early the following morning. There were no truer mourners when all were sad than the poor coloured people who crowded the streets, joined the procession and exhibited their woe bewailing the loss of him whom they regarded as a benefactor and father. It was not until 1901 that a president with the charisma of Lincoln came to the White House and as an assassin's bullet had taken the one, so it made way for the other. Theodore Roosevelt succeeded to the presidency following William McKinley's assassination. With him, he brought a new radicalism that seemed appropriate to the new century. It means the liberty of the big factory owner who is conscienceless and unscrupulous to work his men and women under conditions which keep into their lives like a matter. It means the liberty of even less conscientious factory owners to make their money out of the toil, the labor of little children. Roosevelt became a popular hero, a king who could do no wrong. But soon he was forced to look beyond domestic policy. The Panama Canal, troubles in the Caribbean, the Russo-Japanese War, all served to bring America more and more into the sphere of foreign relations. And this gave rise to a further increase in the power of the American presidency. It is in this sphere that uh, the president's power is potentially greatest, not only because of constitutional positions. The cut and thrust of international diplomacy requires the expertise, quickness of response and flexibility which characterise the executive rather than the legislative branch. But despite this, it remains true that the president's ability to discharge his responsibility as guardian of his nation's security and welfare, in the end depends not on the validity of his assumptions regarding foreign policy, but on his ability to persuade the electorate and its representatives that his perspective is valid and his means and objectives truly desirable. It was this problem of reconciling the desirable and the possible 
that faced Woodrow Wilson when, after a cliffhanger election in 1916, he was returned for a second term. Europe was at war, but Americans preferred not to know. Wilson had won on the slogan, He kept us out of the war. But on February the 3rd, 1917, a German submarine sank the USS Housatonic. Wilson informs Congress that he was breaking off relations with Germany, and on April the 2nd, he sought Congress approval for a declaration of war. The profound sense of the solemn and even tragical character of the step I am taking and of the grave responsibilities which it involves. But in unhesitating obedience to what I deem my constitutional duty, I advise that the Congress declare the recent course of the Imperial German government to be in fact nothing less than war against the government and people of the United States that it formally accept the status of belligerent which has thus been thrust upon it, and that it take immediate steps not only to put the country in a more thorough state of defence, but also to exert all its power and employ all its resources to bring the government of the German Empire to terms and end the war. And so, once again, America was at war. The reaction at home was less than favourable and in 1918, the Democrats lost control of both houses of Congress. Wilson's hand as international mediator was severely restricted. Then the Senate rejected support for the League of Nations. His physical collapse put the seal on democratic hopes as America moved into the swinging twenties. The intoxication of war prosperity and high patriotism had passed. 1920 was the morning after with only a few dull reminders of the long night as the new president, Warren Harding, set America moving towards that never-defined state of normalcy. Never before was there the impressive spectacle of thousands of dead returned to find eternal resting place in the beloved homeland. The incident is without parallel in the history that I know. These dead know nothing of our ceremonies today, they sense nothing of the sentiment or the tenderness which brings their wasted bodies to the homeland for burial, close to kin and friends and cherished associations. And then there were the days of prohibition and a swing to the right. The dry Protestant South extended its influence throughout the Democratic Party. It was hardly the best time for a candidate from New York to seek high office. side, west side, all around the town. The kids sang ring around Rosie, London bridges falling down. Boys and girls together, me and Mamie O'Rourke, we trip the line fantastic on the sidewalks of New York. Alfred E. Smith, son of Irish immigrant parents, had clawed his way from the sidewalks of New York to minor political office. Wealthy backing helped him overcome the handicaps of a Catholic faith, an anti-prohibition stand and a Tammany Hall upbringing. Radio, or as he called it, radio, gave him an easy means of access to the electorate and he used it fully. But it was not enough to overcome the whispering campaign directed at him. He improved the democratic vote 
but it was Herbert Hoover who won in the 1928 election. I have had some experience over the last 25 years and an opportunity to observe European peoples and their leaders with all the forces of good and evil with which they live and to relate them to our American scene. The searchlight of this period and its experience can well be turned on some phases of the present scene. First, let me say something of the, my experience of what war really is. Those who lived in it and our American boys who fought in it dislike to recall its terribleness. We delve today upon its glory, the courage, the heroism, the greatness of the spirit of men. I myself would like to forget all else. But today, with the world driving recklessly into it again, there is much that we must not forget. Hoover was a traditional Republican president, isolationist, even xenophobic, reluctant to use federal power to meet an emergency. In 1929, an emergency of unprecedented proportions hit America. Wave after wave of selling again moved down prices on the stock exchange today, and billions of dollars were clipped from values. Traders surged about the brokerage offices watching their holdings wiped out, and scenes on the floor of the exchange were of a kind never before witnessed. It was one of the worst breaks in history, with all leaders crashing down through resistant barriers. In 1930, the Democrats recaptured Congress. In 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was nominated as their candidate. There were growing signs of a resurgent liberalism, and it challenged the rugged individualism of Hoover. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The New Deal, a crash recovery program, reforms, new legislation. Roosevelt's administration moved in all directions and at incredible speed. The succession of domestic and foreign crises created precisely the conditions on which the presidency flourishes. And as Roosevelt got Americans off their knees, a new and greater crisis threatened the whole world. The expansionist policies of Adolf Hitler and the growth of fascism in Europe threatened to plunge the continent into war. For a time, Britain slept. But at last, Neville Chamberlain was forced into action. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Roosevelt declared that America must remain neutral in policy though she was not neutral in thought. But two years later, he faced Congress with the news of Pearl Harbor. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. America was at war. This time, the links abroad could not be so easily severed. After the war, the new president, Harry Truman, underlined America's new global role. In this treaty, we seek to establish freedom from aggression, 
and from the use of force in the North Atlantic community. The Atlantic Pact. And in London, another link was sealed when General Eisenhower was made a freeman of the city of London. Whether or not you know it, I am now a Londoner myself. I've got just as much right to be down in that crowd yelling as you have. <laughs> the great difference that I see in this city and when I came three years ago is right here. We can now have crowds. There can be happy gatherings. You don't have to listen for a motor in the sky and wonder whether there's a pilot in the blankety-blank thing or not. General Eisenhower returned to America to bring the Republicans back to power in 1952. For his running mate, he chose a little-known Californian, Richard Nixon. The great issue was communism and the defence of the free world. But at home, there were also people who were not free. The issue of civil rights was moving to the centre of the stage. At Little Rock, Arkansas, Eisenhower used federal troops to enforce a school desegregation order. And so the turbulent 60s arrived. America elected its youngest ever president and he brought hope for a new generation. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning signifying renewal as well as change. But the Kennedy era was doomed to frustration. In Congress, the 25-year-old coalition of right-wing Republicans and Southern Democrats imposed a virtual veto on Kennedy's progressive legislation. The frustration turned to despair as the violent society claimed another victim. Senator Ralph Yarbrough told a KBOX reporter that he was riding three cars behind the president's car when he heard three distinct rifle shots. The motorcade then increased in speed, running to Parkland Hospital. Just a moment, just a moment, we have a bulletin coming in. We now switch you directly to Parkland Hospital and KBOX News Director Bill Hampton. The president of the United States is dead. Lyndon Johnson came to power with an unsurpassed knowledge of the men and methods of Capitol Hill. Despite his southern origin, he showed himself both committed to and capable of putting through the sorely needed legislation. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the Congress, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. At times, history and fate meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. There, Long-suffering men and women peacefully protested the denial of their rights as Americans. 
many were brutally assaulted. One good man, a man of God, was killed. There is no cause for pride in what has happened in Selma. There is no cause for self-satisfaction in the long denial of equal rights of millions of Americans. But there is cause for hope and for faith in our democracy in what is happening here tonight. Rarely are we met with a challenge, not to our growth or abundance, or our welfare or our security, but rather to the values and the purposes and the meaning of our beloved nation. The issue of equal rights for American Negroes is such an issue. Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this, there sh can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. But again, the scene shifted. America's role as a world power was putting Johnson to the test. And for all his political skill, the tall Texan could not stand up to this new pressure. Accordingly, I shall not seek, and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The country prepared to elect a new president at the 1968 election. The choice seemed obvious to many, but once again the violent society reached out and claimed another victim. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It could... Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has... Not only Senator Kennedy... Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man... He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. I hope they can get the gun out of his hand. <laughs> Be very careful. Get the gun. Get the gun. Get the gun. Stay away from the gun. Stay away from the gun. His hand is frozen. Get his thumb. Get his thumb. Get his thumb. Take a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb. The assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy. And so, in a victory that was as close as his defeat in 1960... Richard Nixon became President of the United States. And with him, there was a return to a more conservative style of government. But in a speech to the nation in 1968, Nixon outlined the role of the President of the United States. The President is the one official who represents every American, rich and poor, privileged and underprivileged. He represents those whose misfortunes stand in dramatic focus, and also the great, quiet, forgotten majority, the non-shouters and the non-demonstrators, the millions who ask principally to go their own way in decency and dignity, and to have their own rights accorded the same respect they accord the rights of others. And so the citizens of America go in search of their dream, and the citizens of the world await the verdict. <laughs> 